That was the opening music to The Thief of Baghdad, released in 1924, and starring Douglas Fairbanks, Julian Johnston, Schnitz Edwards, and and many more, a cast of thousands, as they say. And uh, it was sort of one of the early roles for Anna May Wong, who had a long career in film. Yeah, I got to reading about her. I kind of went down a rabbit hole on her life and times, and there's a there's actually a biography of her that is out there. Might be interesting to read. I saw that she was she was really disappointed that she didn't get the leading role in Oh, the Good Earth. Yeah, the, she was really disappointed she didn't get the leading role in that. And I think that would she would have been awesome in that. She really would have. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews at www.classicmoviereviews.net. And, of course, you can find us in iTunes. Just search for Classic Movie Reviews. And you can find us on uh, Facebook. And (laughs) where else can you find us, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) Word of mouth. Word of mouth, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So uh, this is Bob Johnson. I'm in uh, Los Angeles where uh, we've had some really nice weather. A little hot, but... We're expecting a lot of rain this fall, which will be good. And I'm Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle, where we're having a mini heat wave. Uh, but it's definitely turning like fall here. The colors are changing, and there's some snow in the mountains, and uh, it's beautiful. This is a great time of year to visit the Pacific Northwest, if you uh, are thinking of doing that. It's beautiful. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, it really is. Those blue skies. <clears throat> well, the Thief of Baghdad... Um, Wow, there's so much to say about it. It was directed by Raoul Walsh, who was uh, active in the film industry from 1913 to 1964. And uh, a couple of movies that he did in the, in the 1940s that are really favorites of mine. One is Objective Burma from 1945 with Earl Flynn. And another one is White Heat from 1949 with James Cagney, where at the end of the film, the entire refinery blows up with James Cagney in it. It's quite a film. And he had quite a career, Raoul Walsh, I tell you. Well, I, I learned something. Well, I learned a couple things uh, reading about this movie, that Douglas Fairbanks helped uh, form United Artists with Charlie Chaplin. Yes, Mary Pickford, D.W. D. Griffith, and uh, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. And it survives today as a part of uh, MGM, I think. And also, he was the first president of the Academy of Motion Picture and Television Arts. Well, I guess it wasn't television at the time, but motion picture, right? Yep. And he, he was the main presenter, I think, at the first Academy Awards. Yeah, that's so cool. He's got, and, and he's got a museum down there in Los Angeles, I think, that you can go visit. Oh, really? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, you might want to put that on your list of things to do. <laughs> I'll have to put that on. Yes, exactly. He and his, he married, later, uh, uh, he married uh, Mary Pickford, and they built this enormous home in Beverly Hills called Pickfair. Oh, cool. And I don't know what, what happened to that uh, mansion, if it's still there. I just don't know. He, uh, you know, what I noticed about this film and watching him was how physically fit and uh, active he was in the film. 
Yeah, when I watched it, I thought he looked like a gymnast, and then I was reading that he also p reminds people of like a uh, ballet dancer. Like he 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 almost dances throughout the whole movie. It, it brought to mind uh, Burt Lancaster in later roles because he was so athletic as well. Mr. Fairbanks was uh, produced the movie, wrote the story, and starred in the film. So he was very much involved from the beginning to the end. And of course, I don't have first-hand knowledge of the 1920s and early 30s, but he was a huge star, as was Mary Pickford, his, his uh, I think, second wife. And uh, there were a lot of films that he did. In like 1922, he did Robin Hood. And then he played uh, he played some swashbucklers, like uh, like these high sea adventures. I think he made yes. a few of those movies. Yes. Uh, I think this was his biggest role, though, at least maybe his most memorable role from what I could read uh, about kind of the history of his films. But I I also was really impressed with the music. Uh, if It's Scheherazade. Scheherazade with Rimsy Korsakoff. And it got stuck in my head, and I've been, like, humming it while I do the dishes and stuff. And this happens to me almost every week when we watch a movie. I start getting that music stuck in my head. And so last night I downloaded the al an album with uh, some of the Scheherazade music on it and uh, was playing it in the car right as I dropped uh, my kids off at school this morning. It's and wonderful music. I, when I was in college, I had a uh, 33 and a third uh, record of that music. Oh, and cool. I would play it over and over and over again. So I, I, I can identify with, when I heard it, I was like, oh man, it's 1962 again. <laughs> it's, be it's beautiful music. The, so the music was just fantastic. I, I just kept thinking over and over this morning how wonderful this movie is. And I would remember parts of it and I would just start laughing or I would start smiling. Like near the end when he... Uh, is headed back to Baghdad, and he and all the people are kind of running away from the city, and and they see yes. that the the Mongol prince has taken over Baghdad, and he's like, oh yeah, and so he rides off on his like beautiful horse, and he gets up to the gates, and they won't let him in, so then he starts using his magic box to make more soldiers, and he's riding around the whole city, like, and more and more soldiers are appearing, and the the Mongol soldiers on the inside of the city are freaking out and they're saying we're surrounded by a hundred thousand soldiers and i just was laughing because the mongol prince felt so good about having twenty thousand soldiers and and uh the thief is like oh yeah i'll show you i'll make a hundred thousand soldiers <laughs> it appeared to me that he could have made a million if he'd wanted to with that magic oh that was so so fun and and uh, just, at, you know, right from the very, very opening shot when there's the nomad out on the desert dunes and the sky is full of stars. Oh, yes. There's a young boy and the, and the nomad starts telling him this story. And I was sucked in and I just could tell I was going to love this movie right from the opening scene. I know. It, you know, it, 
although it's a silent film with the music, of course, it, it, it held together for me all the way through. And I really didn't uh, think about the absence of dialogue in a talking version. And the, and the uh, title cards were just enough to kind of give you the background. But back for a minute to where he's riding off in his horse. Uh, the music was great. He's riding through the sands. I mean, it looked like he went about 100 miles through the sand dunes to oh, get yeah. to the city. And that scene looked like he was really out in the desert. Like, I'm pretty sure that he was somebody, I don't know if it was him, was riding a horse down the dune and around the dune and off into the sunset. And oh, the scope of this movie was just fantastic. It was so big. As athletic as he was, that may have been him. Because, again, it reminded me of Burt Lancaster, where uh, Mr. Lancaster always wanted to do his own stunts. Sometimes to his own injury. Yeah, didn't you say that he got injured one time and they had to rewrite the script to write his injury into the, the movie? Yes, uh, the movie was The Train. And, and he, I think he broke his ankle or sprained his ankle, so they just changed the script. There's so much to cover in this film. It's, it's, it's quite long. It's two hours and 20 minutes for 1924. That was a long film, yeah. I would think. Well, I think it, it kind of breaks down into three sections for me. There's the beginning section when he's just the thief. And he's this happy-go-lucky guy who thinks that he's got everything figured out. And there was that scene when he overhears the... Uh, it, it, he wasn't a priest, but he was like he was in the church, you know, talking about how you can get happiness in life if you work for it and you have to earn your happiness. And, and he jumps down and says, that's a bunch of bunk, you know. I, I'm happy and I don't have to work for it. And I know. That, was, that was kind of the theme of the first part of the movie where he was just sort of this happy-go-lucky thief and had everything that he thought he needed. And then he, he thinks that he's going to have a big, a big, big score by breaking into the palace uh, and stealing some of the jewels from the princess. But then immediately like love at first sight when he sees the princess. And that's kind of the second part of the movie when he's pretending to be a prince. <laughs> yes. With some really dandy clothes. Yeah. And there's some funny like slapstick and there's some funny uh, scenes where he's almost going to get caught, but then doesn't quite get caught. And the other princes are sort of like, this guy can't be for real. And, <laughs> yeah. and what I liked at the, in the, in the first act is uh, as uh, the thief of Baghdad is kind of lying on his back with his hand out, sort of like he's sleeping. And then these uh, wealthy people would come to get a drink of water, and the thief would very adroitly pick, uh, pick their pocket and get their money or gold or whatever coin of the realm it was. And then when they discovered it one time, it was the uh, thing that he'd stolen was empty. I know, that was, was so great. He, he liked, was really swift. Yeah, and then uh, I liked it when he he saw that the woman in the balcony was cooking food, so he climbs up the, the to get to the balcony and steals some food, and then he's watching that magician with the magic rope. Man, that magic rope was so convincing. They did such oh, a great job with that. Weren't, weren't you struck by, as I was, about the special effects and how well they were done? There was the, the rope, the... Uh, flying carpet the flying horse the undersea part the undersea part was so cool it's like this is 90 years ago 
the scene when he first starts it's kind of the beginning of the third part of the movie when he goes off on his adventure and he has to go through that cave of fire that was so good so believable it was so well done yeah the special effects i don't even know how they did it it was it was so far ahead of its time i think i did read where uh douglas fairbanks was involved to every detail of the uh film and all of the script and all of the special effects and everything and it had enormous budget for that 1920 period yeah 1.5 million dollars in 1924 i know and so he i guess my takeaway from what I read was he was not satisfied until it looked perfect. Wow. So they might have to do things over and over again. Well, I kept I kept thinking about building the, the sets. Like, I'm sure some of it was matte paintings, for sure, and some of it was, like, optical effects of where they would in, inset, like, the, the people into the scene as being small scale, and then the, the cave or whatever would be huge, but... Some of those were actual sets. I think they built yes. like this backlot city of Baghdad, and I mean, it was the scale was incredible. I was I was struck by the flying carpet where it's, or is that the horse where he's flying over all those people? I think that, that was the carpet. Hit. Yeah, it was a carpet, and it looks like it's all real. And he and I read that they they actually had him up on a crane. I mean, they were actually on like this platform, and they were moving the crane over the crowd oh my word and there was only once or twice where i could see like strings or you could see kind of how they might have you know suspended the the carpet but for the most part maybe because of the low resolution of the video but for the most part i couldn't see anything go back in time to 1924 and we decide to go to the old paramount theater in downtown seattle you know that one that seats about five thousand people and watching this film for the first time on that huge screen with the organ playing that music, that would have to have been comparable to going to like the first Jurassic Park or the first Star Wars movie in its scope and size and intensity. At least to me, I thought. Yeah, because you would have walked out of there going, "How the heck did they do that? Like how?" Yeah. Did they... And then he, I would have gotten back in line and gone to watch it again. <laughs> it was so. It was so great. I. I've heard so much about this movie, but I've never watched it. I've watched little snippets here and there, but it's, like you said, it's two and a half hours, and it took me a couple sittings to get through the whole thing just because of the time uh, limits that I have. Man, it was so, so well worth watching it. So the the third part of the movie is kind of when he returns from his adventure. So, no, actually... I think the third part of the movie is is his adventure and his return. So like the begin the first act is him as the thief. The second act is him kind of pretending to be a thief but then realizing that you know that's not a life that he wants to lead. He wants to earn the respect of the princess. And he has to also he's also been kicked out of Baghdad so he's got to earn his way back into the city. And then the third part to me is his adventure and then like his return. And his return is not very long. It's only like 20 minutes, but it's it's one of the more fun parts of the film when he gets back to Baghdad. 
I love it when he's invisible going up and down those stairs. <laughs> and he's like a whirlwind. <laughs> and I'm like, how did they do that one? <laughs> yeah, because he lifts her up. He lifts her up as like an I know. and then whisks her up the stairs. And I didn't see any strings or anything there. It was, it was great. And it's like it's a full decade before uh, Hollywood did much of that with like the Invisible Man and that sort of thing. Like I, I used to think that the first, I used to think that the first King Kong was was really ahead of its time in terms of special effects, and I think it was in some ways. But the scope of this movie kind of blows that one out of the water. It's like th- this is so much bigger, so much more expansive. The effects are so much more convincing. They're much more sophisticated than that first King Kong movie where it's animated that you can tell, you know, the movement of the uh, ape. Yeah. So I I can't let it pass that there's something about the American Film Institute on this movie. (laughs) Okay. In keeping with our love of of, um, the American Film Institute. Well, here goes. It gets kind of convoluted, but I've practiced it a little bit. In June of 2008, the American Film Institute revealed its 10 top 10 and the 10 best films in 10 classic American film genres. A lot of 10s there. After polling over 1,500 people from the creative community, The Thief of Baghdad was acknowledged as the ninth best film in the fantasy genre. Now, I don't know how many genres they have. I need to look that up. But 10 top 10 of the 10 best films in 10 classic American film genres. So <laughs> we could maybe we could focus two years on just all the top 10s from the American Film Institute. Oh, my gosh. And also the, the next film that we're going to look at, uh, Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. That's on that list as well. Oh, perfect. So we, you picked... The two that are in the top ten with the American Film Institute on one of their many film genres. Are you sure? Nosferatu's got to be on a top ten list somewhere. Oh, I'm sure it is. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that maybe that's a different list of ten. That's probably ten horror movies. Yeah, <laughs> there was one. There's one title card that I've got. I want to find it real quick and I want to read it because it, it. Oh, I made, think I know the one you mean. It, it was kind of near the end. It made me laugh yes. so hard. Oh, here it is. Here it is. This is it. This is it. This made me laugh so hard. So, <laughs> so the Mongol prince is going to marry the princess uh, through force. Basically, he's taken over Baghdad uh, by stealthily bringing in twenty thousand soldiers. And because he doesn't win the heart of the princess through his his gifts and his you know personality or whatever, he decides that he's going to just take over. So there. And he's going to force her to marry him. And he says, his sort of second-in-command says to the uh, the king of Baghdad that, he, that you shall add joy to the wedding festival by being boiled in oil. <laughs> yes! <laughs> you never think of that, really, as something that would be pleasant. And then they cut to a scene of this ginormous, huge... I know. Like boiling pot of oil. <laughs> it it like, looked like a. Uh, it looked like some kind of a wine glass on steroids. It was huge. Is that the title card you were thinking of? Or yes, there... it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> you shall add joy to the wedding festival by being boiled in oil. <laughs> and it, what makes it perfect is they then immediately switch to that huge cauldron of boiling oil. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the, and the, the second in command gets this really uh, devious like look on his face, and he winks at the king. <laughs> it's just great. I like, I like the headgear on the prince. Yeah, the, the three princes that come, there's the one guy who's sort of like the smarmy prince who's all about being rich and and he's sort of scowling at everybody. And then there's the sort of the overweight prince who can barely stay awake. And <laughs> you know, did you did you see that one scene with that with that prince where he sits down and he almost falls over? Yeah, he's, <laughs> it's like it's like whoops. And then there's the <laughs> Mongol prince who's like evil in person. You know, it's like he's he's just a bad guy from the very get go. And then if there's our thief who pretends to be a prince. <laughs> if that film were made today, the the uh, overweight prince could be made into a bobblehead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had one thing I, I wanted to ask you about on the uh, color in the film. There's there's different colors. Sometimes it's more black and white. And sometimes it has more of a uh, a pinkish uh, rose colored tint to the film. Yeah. Do you think that may just be because of the age of the film, or were they trying to convey a different story with the different use of the color? Well, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that originally when the film came out, it was just black and white. And then at some point, it, uh, a version version was tinted different colors to uh, denote like night or daytime, or, you know, some sometimes it was pink or purple, just to give it like, a mood that reflected the the action that was happening. And in Nosferatu, they did that same thing. And I I think that in some of the old silent films that it was that way originally, that they actually did tint the film when it was released. But then in some others, it was done later. So I'm not a hundred percent sure on this one, but it, 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 it it, uh, didn't detract at all. I just, wasn't sure I was following when it was one and when it was the other. And then another thing I found when I was looking up some information on Anna Mae Wong, in 1924, the same year, she was in some short film which kind of was all in Technicolor. Oh, it, interesting. It was, it was filmed out by the ocean, and I don't, know, I don't remember the subject of the film right now, I, again, I didn't realize Technicolor was around that early. I bet it was hugely expensive to use, but uh, it looked like Technicolor from the 1940s in the in the brief uh, bit of that that I watched. I thought it was cool that they used uh, actors that were of the ethnicity yes. that would be appropriate. I mean, not not all the actors, obviously, but you know, like with the. Uh, the Mongol prince and Anna Mae Wong with the, you know, she played the Mongol slave. And so I thought that was, that was refreshing. And ahead of its time, I think. I, but I, but I, but at, at the same time, as I thought that, I also thought that, of course, they make the Asian actors the bad people in the movie. Yes. No. So that was kind of unfortunate, but so it's kind of, you know, half of one and, half of another for me. I, I just really love everything about the movie. I enjoyed the sets, the action, the story, some of the uh, comedy, and it reminded me how much I enjoyed long ago when I would read uh, different stories from 1001 Nights. Um, so it, it kind of, I may have to go back to doing some of that. I gave the film a 10 out of 10 on my rating. 
Oh, I totally gave it a 10 out of 10. And I feel like we've hit a streak of like these amazing films and I feel fortunate that we're watching them. Uh, I'm not sure that I would have watched them if we hadn't been doing this podcast. So I feel like this is such a great opportunity to watch some of these old films that are just outstanding. They really are. And I I would not have watched this had we not been doing our podcast reviews, but it's, it's, it's brought to my mind how many of these films back in the 19, early 1900s up through the 19, late 1920s were so well done. I just had not really thought about it because my interest in film really took off like in 1939 when that was such a big year with all those films, The Wizard of Oz and so forth. But boy, we have covered a lot. And I think the next one we do is every bit as good as this one. Yeah, from from what I've heard. I did think of The Wizard of Oz a couple times when I watched this movie. I think that that film takes a little bit of inspiration from this in terms of some yeah. of the scope and some of the the setups and things. And, and uh, But again, this movie sort of even beats Wizard of Oz in terms of how big the scope is and the sets and the story. So, yeah, this is this is definitely one that everyone should watch if they're interested in film history and just watching an awesome action adventure movie it's it's terrific i was going to ask you um because it's on youtube is it in the public domain now i imagine after 90 years it is you know that's a good question i'm sometimes i find things on youtube that i'm pretty sure aren't in the public domain and and youtube is pretty good about taking things down generally but there's so many videos out there that maybe some slip through the cracks. So it wouldn't surprise me if it's not in the public domain that if you go back to try to find it a couple months from now, it might not be there. But I'll put a link uh, it, to that YouTube video in the show notes page. And uh, if you are interested in it, definitely check it out. Uh, just make sure you set aside two and a half hours <laughs> for it. I, I also wanted to mention that the... Uh the home video edition of The Thief of Baghdad was released in Blu-ray by the Cohen Film Collection in 2013. But it's got, it's not the same version. It's missing like 10 minutes of what oh. we watched. It's, it's 144 oh. minutes, and this one's like 155 or something. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. But I don't know. I mean, it still may be just as good, but this version seems to be like the most complete one that is out there right now. Our next podcast is Charlie Chaplin, correct? Charlie Chaplin and City Lights. Yep. I'm looking forward to that. I had never seen it as well. Me either. I watched the first 10 minutes of it and I was already laughing. He's so amazing. Like another athlete slash actor. Yeah. With some really baggy pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, shall we wrap it up for this? for this time that's it for this week and thanks for listening everyone this is matt johnson coming to you from sunny seattle and bob johnson uh, from los angeles wishing everyone great movie watching
And they're back in North Bend filming the new Twin Peaks. Oh, they are? This week. They've been... They spent the first part of the week rebuilding the Tweeds Cafe. They've totally repainted it, put up new signage. It looks totally different. And then I think they might be filming today because they've got security guards out and these VIP porta potties. Oh, yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I see those all over town. So that's happening. And then what you have to do is sneak in and try to get some food from their uh, caterer. Yeah, I'm sure that that would work out well for me.